listening to the Back to Back podcast from Fault Radio, the show where we sit down back to back with the producers and labels that are getting us excited. I'm your host, Brennan Coe, and today my guest is San Francisco composer and producer, Christina Chatfield. She's a professional sound designer who has been making music for over a decade with releases on labels such as Beretta Gray and God Particle. Never a DJ, Christina's live sets that center around synths and other hardware have debuted alongside names such as Omar S, Voices from the Lake, Luke Vibbert, Todd Terje, and more. Her most recent release is entitled Ascent Descent, out on the newly minted label from San Francisco's As You Like It, including a 12-inch vinyl that is now available on Bandcamp. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Christina, it is great to have you here. You've been doing a bit of press lately. You are the cover star of the most recent edition of Five Magazine out of Chicago, so congratulations. Thank you so much. And you've been doing some interviews as well to promote your recent album, as I understand. Um, That's coming out on the new As You Like It imprint. How are you with interviews, and do you find them challenging to get through? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's definitely like something that... I've had to do from time to time, but I'm getting used to them slowly. (laughs) Yeah, interviews can be tricky and awkward. uh, I mean, because it's kind of one-sided, right? Like, it's not a normal conversation. One person's asking all the questions, one person's giving all the answers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always like, sometimes you, you, you get tripped up over words and everything as you're doing it. What's the worst interview question you've had to answer? You know, I would say, I don't know that it's the worst question per se, but it's a commonly asked question and it's the, you know, what's it like to be a woman producer question. Oh, right. Um, And, you know, it, it really is after being asked that question so many times, you're like, does somebody ask like Richie Houghton, what's it like to be a man producer? Like, (laughs) of course not, you know? Um, So yeah, that's maybe one of the only ones I can think of. Okay, well, easy for me. Now I just have to avoid that question. And we're going to have a great interview. <laughs> um, did you know that based on search results, um, you are actually the most famous Christina Chatfield on the internet? Oh, my. Yeah, uh, I, I, wonder, could... I wonder who, what other Christina Chatfields I'm competing with. <laughs> do you want to know who takes second place? Yeah, I do. Okay, so second place, get this, is a dentist from the UK who at one point has been named Dental Hygienist of the Year. (laughs) From the UK, not surprising. My last name, Chatfield, (laughs) certainly has British roots. (laughs) But you're not, in fact, uh, a dentist from the United Kingdom. You're a professional sound designer from originally from Dayton, Ohio, and a longtime resident in in San Francisco. Um, You make thrilling techno, and you've been a resident for As You Like It for over a decade, right? That's right. That's right. Um, since the very early years. And, you know, I actually started playing for As You Like It when I was recently breaking out on my own as a solo artist. Um, so Jeremy and the As You Like It crew, they've been like early supporters of me um, uh, for a long time now. So it's, 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 we've been on a long journey together and I, it's hard to believe that it's been 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And when you're breaking out, that was, uh, breaking from your duo, which was uh, as Monocle, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, When I first moved to the Bay Area, I was playing around as part of a duo called Monocle. And so um, eventually we both started to sort of branch out and do solo work. 
Um, and I want to say that As You Like It might have been one of my like third live sets as a solo artist oh, wow. ever. Um, so like really early, early on. I think we have to talk about As You Like It for a minute because what they have done and continue to do for techno and underground music in San Francisco is worth mentioning. You've been coupled with them from the very beginning and have been a part of their parties that they've been producing for the last decade. What has it meant to you to be part of that family and party of dedicated dance music aficionados that really is elevating the perception of San Francisco techno to a larger audience? I mean, it really is incredible how how far it's come. And, you know, going from the early events where it was just a small amount of people and, and you know, it wasn't that long until Jeremy started booking like internationally renowned artists at, for as you like it parties. Um, and it just kept going from there. And eventually like, as you like, it has been doing events almost every weekend. So it really took off and, um, the events were, you know, growing with popularity amongst people here in the Bay area, but it's, it feels awesome to have been a part of that, um, since the beginning and to, to still be a part of it now. Yeah. I listed a few names in the intro that you've uh, debuted with or debuted live sets with, including Todd Terjay, Omar S. Is there one of those that stand out to you? Um, I mean, it's always an honor to play with, with any of these folks, but I will say there was one gig in particular where I was so nervous. I was playing before Adam Hart and Tobias, um, and... During sound check, I just I remember Adam Hart walking over, and I have this um, little uh, DIY 303 kit, it's the the Zox box, and I actually have like a modded out version of it that's called the Zox IO. Um, and he walked over during sound check and was kind of checking it out, and was like, "I have one of those too." And I was like, "I can't have a conversation." It was one of the few moments I really got like fangirled out and just like lost my cool. <laughs> Um, and was having a hard time staying, staying, uh, relaxed for the sound check. So That's great. yeah, it was, it was, it was funny. This was a show in, um, in New York city, but, um, I actually ended up opening for him another time and, and had my act together a lot more, but that first time for whatever reason, the two of them, Adam Hart and Tobias just made me like super, uh, anxious. <laughs> so that old saying, don't meet your heroes. It didn't apply in this situation. <laughs> well, they were, they were super friendly. You know, it had nothing to do with them. They were being very, very nice. I was just being anxious and, you know, I couldn't believe I was sharing a stage with them <laughs> at the time. Yeah. You went to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston and you studied sound design, sound synthesis. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. What is the audition process for that? I mean, because normally, like, a, if you go to study music, like, if you're studying an instrument, you go in an audition, but is there an audition process for something like yeah. sound design? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, at the time when I went to Berkeley, um, you had to have, like, a principal instrument that you played. So even if you were studying something like um, audio production or, or sound design, you still had to have your instrument that you took, like, private lessons on and had to like perform as part of an ensemble with. So for me, my instrument was, was voice. Um, so I entered Berkeley college of music as a, as a voice student. Oh, wow. And then once you enter as an instrumentalist, then you apply to get into the music production or the music synthesis program. Um, and as part of that application, you, you submit a couple of examples of 
projects that you've worked on. And, you know, they're really understanding that like folks who are sending their projects are probably very early on in their sort of production development. So it's not like you have to hand off something of, you know, professional quality at that time. Right. Um, but I think they just want, you know, to, to be confident that you're enthusiastic about the subject you know, and have, and make sure that the whole group of students that they're accepting for that semester are going to just be a good cohort of students kind of all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've heard, you know, since I, I was a student, uh, Berkeley now actually accepts laptop as an instrument. So oh, really? I, I don't know how that would have changed the process I just described. Um, but, you know, I don't know if that means you can be accepted to the school based on like a a production submission only at this point. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I do know that laptop is now considered like a, a, an acceptable principal instrument there. (laughs) I would love to see laptop in the definition of, in the dictionary (laughs) under instruments. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the parameters are there, but uh, when I was there, you know, it had to be like piano or guitar um, as your instrument. I read that I read an interesting um, story that you shared. Um, It was back. It was when you're in school in Berkeley. I think you shared this back in 2011. It was a while ago for the modifier process series. And you wrote that um, when you were in school, a friend told you that your productions, quote, sounded like little creatures digging around in soil. That is so funny. You know, I actually forgot about that comment, but now that you mention it, I remember that comment and I remember who said it. <laughs> they meant it in a good way, I'm sure. Yeah, they did. Um, I think that what they were picking up on were some of the like, I you know, detailed sort of high-end sound design-y things, especially in some of the monocle um, tracks that, that were, you know, some of the earlier stuff that I was working on, but um, little creatures digging in soil. That was always his description. I have to, I have to imagine it was sort of these like higher end sound designy elements that were part of the tracks at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, in that same post, you also said something interesting that I wanted to ask you about. You said the music I am working on at any point in time is usually an indicator of my mood, my state of being, but I don't let that fool you, or excuse me, but don't let that fool you some of the happiest sounding tunes I've made were written during some of the deepest slumps in my life. Why, why write a happy song when you're depressed or in a deep slump? Yeah. So honestly, I can, I can think of a concrete example of a track like that, which was the finite track, um, part of the finite EP that I did with Beretta music. Um, And at the time I was like, I was going through a really rough breakup and I was kind of, you know, getting used to being at home by myself all the time again. And was just sort of like, how am I going to occupy my time and my mind? Which of course, that's when I turned to music and and working in the studio. And so I just kind of started writing this like soulful house music as opposed to something that sounded mopey and depressed as though I had just gone through a breakup, which I had. Um, what I ended up doing was writing like kind of cordy, you know, uh, uplifting, dare I say, (laughs) house music. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have to wonder almost as like a way of, you know, cheering myself up in that moment. Yeah. And I think you said also for like a Beretta, um, it was like a video vignette. You said that the A side was, uh, influenced by Carrie Chandler. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's the that's the very track that I'm referencing right now. So like, I think, you know, probably at the time I was also listening to like, happier house music, as I was going through this breakup, just to kind of cheer myself up. Um, and then it, you know, it came out in the music that I was making at the time. Nice. Well, that's the perfect segue for us to talk about your newest release, Ascent Descent. What were some of the influences that um, kind of inspired you for the tracks on this release? Well, one of the tracks, which is the B-side, Descent, um, I wrote that track as I was getting ready, a, you know, about, well, over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, um, for my first international uh, live show, which was in Paris um, with the with a bunch of the gray area folks. We did a gray area showcase um, at a really amazing venue in Paris. And I'm afraid I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of it, but it was called Le Gate of Lilique or something along those lines. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> give those we'll give you a pass. We'll give you a pass. can speak French properly. Um, but I made this, the Descent track, like especially for that, um, specifically for that set. And at the time I was just kind of wanting to write, you know, heady, uh, dissident, um, pounding techno for that, for that set. Um, so honestly, that, that was really the inspiration for the, the descent track was getting ready for this first, for this first show in Europe. Um, and then the A side, I, I recently about four years ago, I kind of decided to start putting some self-imposed constraints in like mm. my process in the studio and the kinds of gear that I was using and I was like, I'm just going to make kind of stripped down, you know, acid techno. And I will only use a drum machine, um, a couple of 303s and like one other synth. And so the A side of the EP is one of the tracks that I made kind of with, with those parameters in mind. Um, and so that, that's where that came from. And in both cases, I was just looking to make like, you know, fun fun techno that reminded me of what it, what I would hear when I was growing up uh, in the Midwest and going to parties, you know, a long yeah. time ago back in the Midwest. That's cool. Well, I think that's a perfect chance for us to now listen to your tracks. And I think maybe we could start with the A side. Let's listen to Ascent. <laughs> As you said, the acid flavor is strong in this track and throughout the release. And it's like the flavor of smoke in a good barbecue. <laughs> and what I really notice about your music is that it's incredibly well balanced. And in this track, you use a 
pad to add some harmonics that comes along in the middle towards the end of the track, but it doesn't overpower the main themes, which is something sometimes I hear with other artists when they use pads, they just come in too loud and too dense. What are you thinking about when you are working with pads in your tracks? Well, this one, especially, I would say was maybe an exception to what I do, what I would normally do. And that, you know, that pad kind of comes in only in one moment in the track. Um, and that was another sort of example of me trying to practice some self-restraint, you know, um, production wise. Um, I've certainly to be, you know, self-critical for a moment. I, I think in, in the past, I've sometimes had a tendency to like overproduce things probably because I was a professional sound designer. You know what I mean? That was, mm -hmm. and it's, it's sort of like when someone who is really good at the guitar is just like shredding and doing way too much, like in the guitar solo, you know right. what I mean? Um, and so with this track, I really tried to make a, a conscious effort to like, yes, I want to have like a cool, you know, moment in the middle of the track, but I just want it to happen once and not be something that like repeats itself and, you know, sort of becomes this repetitive, uh, theme in the track. Right. It adds a really nice flavor and really nice harmonics to, I think what the main driver is the, the acid baseline. When you're constructing your your acid baselines, do you look to certain examples of like classic records or are you trying to start from like a fresh idea? Sometimes for sure. Well, you know what's kind of funny is there have definitely been times and I swear it's like subconscious, but there have been times where I was sitting in my studio and writing. Was like, why does this like remind me? I feel like this reminds me of something. And I realized that I like unconsciously sort of wrote, you know, made like a cover of a, a classic tune or something like that. Um, but in general, you know, I try to, I, I just try to come up with new things that complement the drums a lot. I would say when I'm programming a 303, I'm always thinking about how it syncopates against the you know, the drum pattern that it's going on top of. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, that's, that's one of the big reasons I like to have two 303s in my studio is because I like to, between the two 303s, program some polyrhythmic patterns um, where the two are kind of, you know, undulating against each other. Right. Um, so in a way, when I'm programming a 303, it's almost like rhythm programming, uh, more than it is a melody. Like, of course, it has a, a melody with it, but I'm I'm more thinking yeah. about kind of the the percussive and the rhythm elements behind it. Yeah, it's almost like a double instrument. Yeah. Uh, making this album, you said before that you wanted it to, or part of the influence was trying to connect back to the sounds that you had been hearing in the that you heard in the Midwest growing up. Those acid sounds. Why do you think the acid sound is? so predominant in the Midwest or like is very much beloved? You know, I, I think for, for me, a lot of it is, it's, it's nostalgia um, because it's what I remember hearing when I was first going to parties and being exposed to electronic music as a teenager. Um, so I, for myself, I would definitely say nostalgia is a big part of it. As for why it's so popular in the Midwest in general, I mean, I think just because it's it's Jack and fun party music, <laughs> and that's that's what we were all about there for for you know many years. So it's kind of like the 
sometimes when I listen to Acid House, I'm I'm like really if I listen to like a really interesting 303 bass, I'm like, wow, that's like super, super cool. But then if I listen to one that's not so interesting, it kind of it's like um it's almost like the um what is it, the the Jesus break and oh like yeah or right. drum and bass. It's just like <laughs> everybody uses it and it, it's great, but things still it just ends up sounding the same too much. Totally. You know, it's it's funny, but like kind of an offshoot of that when the 303 piece of equipment very first came out um, from Roland, it was actually considered a massive commercial failure because what the instrument was originally meant to emulate was the sound of an electric bass player, like in a band. If you couldn't find a bass player, the idea was that the 303 could be, you know, a suitable replacement for that. So when you think about it through that lens, it's kind of hilarious because when I think of a 303, I don't think of anything that like an electric bass would sound like. (laughs) Um, And so I think, you know, what I've heard is that Roland considered it to be kind of a huge failure. Um, And so it's interesting to think about how iconic it's become since um once people accepted that it's it doesn't make electronic or sorry electric bass sounds and once people accepted that and started using it for other things um now it has you know solidified its place in um electronic music and synthesizer history definitely well let's continue on that train of thought with the 303 and the acid baseline because it also appears in the B-side in your track Descent. So let's give that a listen so everybody can hear what we're talking about. Descent. It's the B side of the Ascent Descent EP uh, from As You Like It Recordings, and it's a track like you said you prepared when you were playing your first Euro- European show in Paris for the first time. In my album review, I wrote that this track sounded to me like a robot's existential crisis. And now that I have you here, I'm curious to know how far off do you think my assessment was? You know, I actually think that I kind of like that, especially when I think about it through the context of you know, this pandemic and sort of the day-to-day lives that we're all living. Um, I, in a way it sounds very dystopian to me. So I definitely get the like robot vibe that you mentioned. Um, and I would say that that's actually a a pretty good description. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm also curious to know, like when you played that show in Paris, how did the crowd react to your set? Did they, did they like it? Uh, That was honestly, for me, that was one of the most magical live shows that I have ever played. That crowd was so enthusiastic. And I mean, it was a really special event because um, that weekend all around Paris, they just had art exhibitions at various galleries and museums and different venues all around the city. And the whole thing was free. So the audience had 
you know, come fresh from various other expos and, and, you know, installations at other venues um, before they got to the one where we were all playing. And I played from, I think it was two to four in the morning. So it was like the very end of the night before the event was going to kind of wrap up and everyone had to go home. So by the time people showed up to our party, they were ready to go. And that was one of the most enthusiastic crowds I've ever played for. (laughs) I had no idea what to expect. You know, I know sometimes in Europe, people like faster BPMs and stuff, which honestly is not always my natural tendency. So Mm -hmm. I was really worried and anxious going into it, like how some of the stuff would go over. But man, that crowd, people were like, jumping onto the stage and stuff. I'm just, I'm not used to that kind of uh, reaction here in the States. Like people get into stuff here, but this was like, I I almost felt like I was playing like a a punk show or something. (laughs) 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 It was was amazing. That sounds really fun. I can't wait to go back to Paris someday. (laughs) Yeah. I think, (laughs) I think we all, um, we're all waiting to go back to the clubs, all waiting to go back to our favorite destinations. Absolutely. Um, you work with hardware um, and you only do live sets. You don't DJ. Was that That's a, right. was that a conscious decision or was that just, you'd never really had an interest in DJing? No, not, not a conscious decision. I would, I, I think it was just sort of a natural extension from the fact that I was studying music production in college. Um, And although, you know, in my earlier college years, I did have a slot on the college radio station and I DJed a electronic radio, uh, electronic music radio show. Um, But that said, I think what my, what I was really focusing my energy and my effort on was on production. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that became the thing when I started thinking about how do I want to bring my music to the world? I was thinking more about the music that I was producing. Um, Cause honestly, it's really hard to be both a great DJ and a great producer. Like totally. there are definitely people out there who, who succeed at both. Um, but you know, I, I, I think both are, are almost full-time jobs, you know, yeah. having, you know, as from the DJ perspective, like having the time to dedicate to um, browsing music and finding great, tracks to play and then on the production side you know spending the time and putting in the work in the studio they're both i would say about equal amounts of time could be spent on both (laughs) so for me i i chose the the production path and just kind of stuck with that um that said i mean i you know i i have a record player i collect records and um not necessarily electronic music records, though. When I buy records, it's usually like, you know, glam rock or shoegaze or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, I love DJs and I respect the art form. It's just um, when it kind of came time for like, what am I going to spend all my time on? It was music production. And I just I think that was just because of what I was doing in school. Mm-hmm. Do you have any Nine Inch Nails records in your collection? Oh, of course. <laughs> I am such a Nine Inch Nails fangirl. Um, early Nine Inch Nails. I have lots of Nine Inch Nails records, and then I have, you know, almost all of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's uh, film scores. Oh, wow. Because those are, those are excellent as well. When it comes to, like, 
the things Trent Reznor has done in more recent times, it's really the film scores uh, that speak to me. <laughs> what films uh, have they done scores for? Um, most recently, the one they did that I think is just incredible was they scored the Watchmen series on HBO. Oh, wow. Um, but the, the very first score that Trent Reznor, or sorry, the very first film that Trent Reznor scored with Atticus Ross was The Social Network the Facebook movie from, you know, about 10 years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember when that, when that soundtrack came out, it had a lot of, it's basically an electronic music soundtrack. And I remember, you know, joking with friends at the time, I'm like, did Trent Reznor just release like the best electronic music album of the year? Like (laughs) that's not what I expected from him in the year, you know, 2011 or whatever it was. And especially not in the form of like a, you know, big budget Hollywood film soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But honestly, I think it's a, it made a lot of sense to me why he became a film composer, because if you go and listen to, you know, early Nine Inch Nails and some of the more ambient tracks or like the more interstitial tracks and in his albums, the cinematic aspect of that music really stands out. Um, have, so have you had any ambitions to do something like that, to do something that's not like dance floor music, but like film scoring or otherwise? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I've certainly started to branch more into the ambient direction. Um, in fact, I have, uh, my first full length album coming out, um, in the next, you know, few months and it's going to be an ambient album actually. Um, but in terms of like, you know, do I want to score films or, uh, you know what I always wanted to do that I thought always sounded fun was scoring video games. (laughs) I'm a total 80s Nintendo child. And, you know, while I know video games have come uh, a long way since then, I still think the idea of scoring, you know, these, these virtual worlds and whatnot, um, sounds really fun but i know it's a very it's a hard industry to break into it's a Mm -hmm. hard industry to kind of make it in and the people who make it work really really hard um so i will we'll see maybe one day (laughs) maybe one day (laughs) plenty of time i think in your career to to do a bunch of different avenues pursue a different avenue i think Uh, one of the things i am really interested in just thinking about, um, you know, video game sound design is, uh, three dimensional sound design and, and doing like the way that that would translate is like sound design for uh, virtual reality where you can hear things in front of you or behind you or side to side. Um, it's one of the reasons that when I've had the opportunity to play at the envelop venue here in san francisco which is um part of the midway Mm -hmm. it's a surround sound venue where from a compositional standpoint you're able to make music that is completely immersive meaning you can you know design the sound so that it's it's it sounds like it's coming from behind you and and upwards or like it's coming from in front of you and to the left um and it really opens up like a whole new Uh, a whole new set of options and a whole new way of thinking when it comes to writing music for that kind of environment. Yeah. It'd be almost like writing music for like a virtual sound bath almost. Yeah, exactly. 
And it, it just changes the way that you think about, you know, mixing something or even the way that you think about writing it in the first place. Um, when you, if you imagine, you know, people sitting in a space surrounded by 360 degree speakers, it just kind of changes the way that you, you compose. Yeah, totally. The next track I wanted to ask you about and listen with you, listen to with you is energies. And it doesn't make the vinyl release, but you can get the digital copy on Bandcamp or on Beatport. And I think it's a great addition to the record. It's just got a, it's got a bit, I think as the title suggests, it's got a bit more energy, a li- little bit different flavor. Um, so let's get to energies. got a remix from Lily Ackerman, who you recently described in the Five Magazine profile as one of your favorite San Francisco DJs. When you hear that someone is going to remix one of your tracks, what are your immediate reactions? Because some artists I talk to really enjoy people doing remixes and others not so much. I I love having people remix my music. Um, to be honest, I... I it's fun to get the end results back and especially to see what different people do with the same track. I will admit that I don't always love to be a remixer on other people's (laughs) tracks. I like it when people remix my music, but I think sometimes being a remixer for me is, is really hard. Um, but Lily, I thought she turned in a, an awesome remix for Energies. Um, it kind of has like an old school rave vibe. The whole record does really, which is exactly what I was going for with my tracks. Mm-hmm. And so I love that the remix artists all picked up on that as well. Yeah, it's great that there's a lot of remixes. There's four remixes in total and all of them are have been involved with as you like it and as you like it itself has like this family feeling to it. Everybody seems to know everybody and they support each other. Do you think it's good when people that, you know, get the opportunity to, you know, go overseas and pursue the markets that are overseas, you know, in, in in Europe or elsewhere, or do you wish more people would stay, you know, like hunker down and grind it out in the Bay area? You know, that's that's a great question, honestly. I think that from my perspective, I want for artists to pursue whatever path that they are passionate about, whether that means, you know, moving to Berlin and trying to, you know, break into the European scene or whether that means moving to, I know people who've moved to, you know, Mexico or South America to do the same. Um, I, I don't 
you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to feel like they have to stay in any particular place. Um, because I know, I know how it can feel to just like want to bring your music to the world and want to, you know, experience different places and new scenes and, and put yourself out there and get your name out there. And whatever that means for someone, whether that's moving to London or moving to New York or move, staying here or whatever, um, I think people should just, you know, pursue the path that they want to pursue. Well said. <laughs> and you have the, I think I really appreciate your perspective on that because you're someone who's toured all over the country and you've toured in Europe as well. And in a conversation we had back in, I want to say it was 2018 when we were discussing the As You Like It eight-year anniversary, you mentioned to me that Minneapolis had a great music scene. And in a, yeah, in a city with um, a population less than 500,000 people, what impressed you the most about the scene there? I just, I thought it was so cool. I had no idea what to expect when I got there. And first of all, my the show that I was playing was actually at the same venue that Purple Rain was filmed at First Avenue. Um, and so that for me was exciting in, in, in itself as a, I'm a big Prince fan. But then after the event that I played was great and lots of people came, but afterwards we went to a, an after party that was like in a warehouse there. And I just, you know, it's, it's rare sometimes even here in San Francisco that there is an after party to go to, let alone at like a warehouse, you know? So I guess I I wasn't totally sure what to expect, but, um, what I found was a city full of super passionate people. Um, there's, there's folks there who are running a, uh, music production school. Um, there are people who are doing all kinds of cool art and that kind of stuff. The culinary and food scene there was great. I just, I was really impressed and I had never been to Minneapolis before, so really didn't know what to expect, but I ended up, you know, out all night and I'm someone who likes to go to bed early. So (laughs) it has to be good for me to actually stay out at the after party. Um, it, it really, it impressed me, the people, the, at the whole vibe, the venues that, that they have. Um, I loved it. Shout out Minneapolis. <laughs> and I think I should mention it. It's a, it's a city of a, around 500,000, not 5,000, I think, as I said, so sorry, Minneapolis. Um, but Christina, we're running up on, we're running up on time. Um, I had so many questions I want to ask you, but I want to end on kind of a silly one or a fun one you work with hardware you work with synths and drum machines some of which can cost a pretty penny Uh, and i know you've been you know stripping back your production to limiting it to a few pieces of gear here and there but if your studio were to be flooded or if the big earthquake were to hit san francisco what synth or piece of hardware are you saving oh man that is such a tough question and like Okay, I have to think about it. I think I would save my analog rhythm because that is certainly the heart and brain of my live set and most of my productions at this point. I've, you know, created a lot of my own uh, sampled kits and loaded those onto the analog rhythm. Um, and a lot of the, you know, patterns and things that, that you hear in my productions all live on that synth. 
So I, I think of all of my synths that I own, if that one were to, you know, disappear for whatever reason, that would be like a good chunk of the work that I've done over the years. So electron analog rhythm, while I know it's not rare, it has most of my creative output on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christina, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, One last question. What have you got coming up that you can let people know about? Um, the album that I have coming out on Mysteries of the Deep, the ambient album that I mentioned earlier, um, will be coming out in 2021. So I'm super excited about that. Awesome. And you can pick up Christina's latest release, which is out on As You Like It Recordings. It's releasing November 27th, 2020. It is entitled Ascent Descent. It's an eight track EP with a 12-inch vinyl where you can get two title tracks as well as two remixes from Tin Man and Noncompliant. Christina, thank you for being on the show, and hopefully we can talk to each other again soon. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us at Fault Radio at faultradio.com or on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Twitch, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and see you in the next episode.